morning, church. As Patrice said, Acts 14, we're going to finish up this chapter uh, today. And uh, I, want to, I want you to think about this question as we get uh, started here. It is, it is catechism day, right? Did you say the catechism thing? Yeah, junior high should head out to catechism. It's room 200 upstairs. So I see some of them leaving. So it's good that they remember because I'd say like 70% of the time we forget to announce it. Yeah, that's good. All right, here's the, here's the question um, that I want you to think about. What's the worst thing that has happened to you because you're a Christian? What's the worst thing that has happened to you because you're a Christian? Uh, you came uh, to faith in Christ, and uh, what happened? You, you gave your life to Christ, you were converted, and then you faced some consequence of, of that. Was it that you were left out of a high school friend group because you were a Christian? Was it um, that certain topics of conversation became a no-fly zone at family dinners, or that you couldn't attend a certain uh, family wedding because it violated uh, biblical convictions about God's design? Was it that neighbors um, kept their distance because you were a Christian? When Cheryl and I first moved to town uh, in 2001, we bought in a new development. We had a new house built, and there were houses, there were house lots all around us that had not yet been chosen. And unbeknownst to us, the people at the sales office, as they were pointing out available lots to people who were coming in, they were saying, well, that's where the pastor lives. And so, and so, as, and so people picked lots away from us. They didn't want to be near us. Is it, is it that you lost a job or didn't get a job or didn't get a promotion? Is it that you have become estranged from family altogether because you're a Christian? There are effects to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is assaulted by a mob in the city of Lystra. They threw stones at him. They dragged him away and they left him for dead because he was a Christian fulfilling the very thing that God had commissioned him to do. And this incident, incident in Lister shines a light on our willingness to stand strong in the face of stinging opposition to the gospel and to carry out the mission no matter what. And so let's turn our attention to the text to see exactly what Paul and Barnabas went through in this city. This is Acts 14, verse, beginning of verse 19 and through to the end of the chapter. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. All right, here's what we're going after in this message. You'll see it on the screen and in your notes. I'll be strengthened as a Christian no matter what, uh, if I am. And what we're going to look at is five means by which we are to be strengthened. Five means, five things that we can do in order to be strengthened. But I want to be very clear about something as I talk about this is that um, we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses these means that we're going to talk about to do so. So I'm not bringing any strength of my own to the table. I'm not, in essence, strengthening myself so much as it is me opening the doorway through these means for the Holy Spirit to do the strengthening in my life. Now, before we get to that, I hope that's clear, but before we get to the five means themselves, uh, let's set this up. And in verses 19 through the first little bit of verse 22, uh, we see Paul and Barnabas had been ministering in Lystra, and they had been doing so for some time. There's some indications in the text that they'd been at Lystra for some time. The whole of the missionary journey that we've been looking at in Acts 13 and 14 is called Paul's first missionary journey. And the whole of that journey, scholars believe, lasted not less than four months and probably as long as 12 months for him to do everything that we've seen in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, for example, just to travel from Derby, the last city that they're in that we read about here, to go back to Pisidian Antioch, just to do that distance, 330 kilometers, or at the time, 13 days of walking. And so you get a sense that just to move between these cities takes such a long period of time, that it, and, and then for them to spend any period of time in each of the cities would have taken months and months and months for them to complete all of the actions, all of the visits, everything that we see in Acts 13 and, and 14. And so Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Lystra, these Jews from uh, Jewish leadership from other cities that they had been in. They now show up in Lystra. They were intent on stopping the bleed. No doubt in their own cities, they had seen the effects of the gospel because Paul and Barnabas had gone to their synagogues and preached the gospel and people had been converted and had now been joined to the church. And so these Jewish leaders in all these other cities were like, we need to go to Lystra. We need to tell those people all about Paul and Barnabas and kind of like stop the bleeding. This gospel is having too much of an effect on people. And so they came, verse 19, notice, they persuaded the crowds, which then resulted in this very violent response by the crowd, and they stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, and they thought he was dead. Now in verse 20, we're told that the disciples, he, they've thrown him out of the city now, the, 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 his body, and the disciples gathered around him, and the text doesn't tell us exactly what they were doing, but they all got around Paul Lying on the ground, people think he's dead. What were they doing? They could have been praying. It's likely they were praying. And, and, and it could have been they were just providing a protective shield for him. For sure, they had gathered around him to kind of like show their concern. Paul, we're, we're here for you. We're not told specifically, but in any event, whatever they were doing as they gathered around him, he jumped up. And so he was not, in fact, dead. 
He went back into the city, he spent the night, and then he set off for Derby the next day. Now, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are are a two-volume set, and so he wrote, wrote both of these, but he's also a physician. He's intent on a lot of detail in Luke and Acts. And, and one of the things Luke did not do here is he did not record that Paul was dead. They thought he was dead. And that's the way Luke records it. And so this is not, when you think about a miracle that might have happened here, this is not a, a, a raising from the dead miracle that we see here, but it is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's providential protection of his servant who was on mission for him. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel in Derby, that all happens. When they had preached the gospel in Derby, they go the next day to that city. They made many disciples there, people responding to the gospel. So they're seeing all of this, but they, they kind of know Derby's the end of the road. This is like the last place that we want to preach the gospel, and, and then we're going we're gonna to end this mission. And so, and so as they're deciding this, you know, Paul said, hey, Barney, you know, what, you know what we ought to do? Little known fact that Paul called Barnabas Barney. And uh, you have to do, I just want to let you know, I do very deep study for these messages to find out stuff like this. But he says, hey, Barney, you know what we ought to do? And then Paul did what I would do. Paul rolled out the map. He rolls out the map. He says, I, you know, I got a plan. I think I know what we ought to do next. And he says, he says to Barnabas, he says, we ought to go back to Lystra. We ought to go back to Iconium. We ought to go back to Antioch. And Barney said to him, he says, I'm down. Let's go. Let's get on, let's get on with it. Now, how many, having mentioned maps, having mentioned maps, you know what's going to happen next, don't you? Who's, who's excited for some map work right now? Come on, who's excited for some map work right now? All right, we got a map on the board, and uh, we're going to look at this together and just see exactly what we've been looking at all along here, Uh, but you just follow along. So this is Acts 13 and 14, everything we've been looking at, seven sermons, the last seven sermons, first missionary journey, and you're going to recall that they left. Just follow the pink arrows. Let's see the first one. I think the first one can pop up here. Uh, See that? Is that pink or purple? Okay, it's purple. Uh, So follow the arrows as we go through all of this. You'll recall that they left Antioch in Syria. There's two Antiochs. There's one in Syria. There's one in in Pisidia. Don't confuse the two of them. Uh, But they left Antioch in Syria. They sailed to Cyprus, and they had a very successful ministry there in uh, Barnabas' home island. They sailed then to Perga, and it was in Perga that uh, something happened, and John Mark, the young man that was with them on this trip, he decides that he's He's out and he heads back to Jerusalem. He'll figure back in the story later. Then they, drew, they walked inland uh, to Pisidian Antioch, the other Antioch where he preached a sermon. And along the way, you know, there, it's not just the cities that are mentioned, but they're stopping in villages and towns all along the way and they're sharing the gospel in all these other places. So that in chapter 13, verse 49, this is what we read, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In other words, people, not only were they hearing it from Paul and Barnabas, but they were hearing it from people who had heard it from Paul and Barnabas and the word is just spreading everywhere. People are hearing about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and how people's lives are being transformed and their sins forgiven. But also, also, while the word of God is spreading, so is strife. Trouble is being stirred up. 
And so they moved on to Iconium, where again, after preaching success, they were driven out by threats. And they went to Lystra, the passage we just met, read today, where again, disciples were made, but Paul was stoned by the crowd. So off they went to Derby, where we find ourselves in this very moment. Now, we're not just doing this little geography lesson, and some of you are, you know, you're having those high school flashbacks and going, this is why I hated geography, because in high school, because it had no point, and I don't know why he told us on that and took us all on this little map journey, and why does this even matter? It matters. Listen, it mattered in high school, and it matters now. And this little geography lesson is here because after being away for so long and, and after accomplishing so much, preached to so many people and saw so many people come to faith in Christ and so many baptisms and so many disciples made and churches planted and elders appointed, they knew, they knew it was time to head back to their sending church and report. And they could have simply done this. Okay, watch on the map now. They could have simply uh, done this. They could have gone from Derby southeast from where they were, because you remember where they started, down to Tarsus. Now, what's, what's great about Tarsus, and you got to believe that Paul might have discussed it, was that's his hometown. He's probably got family. He's certainly got friends there. He spent a long time, grew up there. Let's just head to my hometown and then we can go to the coast and we can take the boat from there back to, to Syria, uh, back to Antioch in Syria. But the reason why they didn't do that is because they had mission on their mind and they had the passion of the gospel in their hearts. And they knew they were still on mission. So instead of taking the easy route down to Tarsus and taking a quick boat ride over to Antioch, they headed back northwest, right into the eye of the storm. Paul says, in essence, he's saying, let's visit all the places we just preached. All the places we just spent the last four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months in. Let's go back to all the places and see all the converts we have. Let's go back and visit the churches. And, and yes, yes, Barney, I, I've not forgotten that we were also chased out under threat of death. And so they retraced their steps from Derby, through Lystra, through Iconium, through Pisidian Antioch, through Perga, and then to Italia on the coast where they sailed for Antioch in Syria to report to the church that had sent them out. And so the point of the, of the geography lesson is this. They could have taken the easy route. They could have taken, the expression for us is they could have taken the path of least resistance. They could have taken the easy route, but they were on mission for Jesus Christ. They had something they wanted to accomplish. And they did all of this because, and you see this in verse 22, the first part of verse 22. They did this because strengthening the souls of the disciples was of higher value than personal safety and comfort strengthening the souls of the disciples was more important than their personal safety or comfort. And in fact, they're going to go back to this same group of cities. They're going to go back to them again in the second missionary journey in chapter 16. And I think about that and I go, like that level of commitment to the mission challenges me with how I'm living my life. I ask myself, do I have that kind of supernatural strength in me 
that kind of drive and desire for the gospel that I see in Paul and Barnabas. Now listen, that was it. For those of you that are making notes and you're thinking, are we in the first point yet? Because he's been going on a long time. We are in a, we're still in a little introduction here, but I am done now. Because that was a very long but necessary setup to say this. I'll be strengthened as a Christian no matter what. If I am, here's the five means and here's the first of them. If I am continuing in the faith. Because you only do the kind of stuff that Paul and Barnabas are doing here if you're continuing in the faith. Paul and Barnabas revisited these disciples precisely because they needed to do follow-up. They needed to check in with them. They needed to reinforce the teaching that they had left with them over the weeks and months that they had spent with each of these folks. They needed further teaching. They needed discipleship. They needed training. And so they went back, verse 22, partway through, they went back encouraging them to continue in the faith. And maybe as part of that, having presented the gospel and laid out the, the kind of the basics of what it means to be a Christian, maybe now they went back and they fielded questions from the new believers in each of these cities and these churches. You can imagine the kind of questions they might have asked. Hey, I came up with a certain situation at work and I'm not sure as a Christian how I'm supposed to handle this. Or how do we respond to somebody raising this objection and this argument and how do I respond to that? Or, or could you... Could you go over the Trinity one more time for me? I'm not sure I have it. Or tell us more about Jesus. You told us all these stories about Jesus. There has to be more that you could tell us. Or maybe you could explain to us how the gospel impacts our marriages or, or how it impacts how we're raising our kids. It was probably questions like that that Paul and Barnabas were following up with them on. Because we're saved, what we're saved to is an all-in life of following Jesus Christ. And a true follower of Christ, a true Christian does not quit, but continues in the faith. The same gospel that saves us informs every aspect of our life, and we need this follow-up, and we need this constant teaching. Paul encouraged them to continue in the faith. That word continue in the faith, the lexicon says it means to remain in or to keep on. It's, it's, think of the word persevere. They were to persevere in the faith. And the whole idea of the construction here is that is a sustained effort to stay in the faith, that I'm going to put something into it. And I'm going to do so using the phrase in our in our outline here, no matter what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue in the faith no matter what. That has implications. Paul, who's, you know, the, the lead on this team, he, he wrote a letter to one of his young apprentices, to Timothy. Timothy was a young man. Paul was his mentor. Timothy ended up being the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul wrote him two letters that we have in the scriptures, two letters that were also inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in, in the second letter to Timothy, and this was the last thing that we have that Paul wrote, 
before he was executed. And Paul said this to Timothy. He said, you, however, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Now notice this, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. And so Paul's saying, you've, been, you've, you've listened to everything I told you about this very missionary journey that we've been reading about in Acts 13 and 14. And he says, which persecutions I endured. He says, I got through all of that. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. It was the spirit that was strengthening him all the way along. And then he says this, indeed, and this is the part that is specifically for us and underlined on the slide so that we can note this and remember it. Because Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is critical. This line is critical to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Indeed, all. That's all of us. That's every believer, all of us. The, the, the struggles that come along with living out and proclaiming the gospel are not simply, what Paul's saying here to Timothy, it's not simply for those that we might call professional Christians. We're not talking about this applying only to pastors or preachers or missionaries or evangelists. This is for all Christians to take note. It affects all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. If you, if you claim to be a Christian here today, if you claim to be a Christian but have no interest in the godly life, then you will likely get a pass on persecution. You're saying, like, I'm reading what Paul said to Timothy and I don't really think I've ever been persecuted. Maybe it's because of the way you're living your Christian life. And maybe it's not even a Christian life. That's the implications of this. The opposition cares nothing for the one who calls themselves a Christian, verbally says, I'm a Christian, have a, have, a, have a profession with your mouth, but no reality in the way you're living your life. Listen, listen, the opposition has no, has no time for you. They don't have to put any time into you. It is the passionate, devoted follower of Christ that raises the ire of Satan and his evil cronies in this world. It's the the one who is indeed continuing in the faith, showing that the gospel is transforming them. And so, like, if you feel no pressure as a result of your faith, that may be an indication that you're not desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And it may be that you don't know God in the way that is characterized by these Christians that we're seeing in this narrative. And we're 14 chapters, we're going to finish the 14th chapter of Acts here. And we've been in the book of Acts for a while. This is message 38, I believe. We've been th- we're 38 messages deep into this, 14 chapters. And what have we seen from the believers in this span of the book of Acts? We have seen a hunger for the word of God. We have seen an eagerness to worship the Lord. We have seen people at war with sin in their lives. We have seen people sensitive to matters of injustice 
this in the culture. We have seen serving according to their gifts. We have seen people who were generous in every way with what they have, with their time, with their money, with their possessions, their energy, their wisdom, their maturity, and their experience. We have seen people in this first part of the book of Acts who have a a deep passion for others to know Jesus Christ, a deep concern for the spiritually lost. And that at least describes in part what the godly life is. Now the caution that we need to hear is that this is not simply about doing the right religious things because we can fall into that trap but that these means would be flowing out of a life that knows, knows God. And when I use that expression, a life that knows God, I mean that someone who knows God experientially and relationally, like you know, you know God. I've started a rereading of a classic book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God, and um, He said this, Packer said this, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. I'm I'm ashamed, really, in a lot of ways at how much I know about celebrities, how much detail I know about the lives of celebrities, movie stars or athletes, I, 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 sometimes I know their spouses' names and their kids or if they're getting married and what their stats are and where they live and where they were born and how long they've been in the league and how many teams they've played for and what movies they've been in, whatever it happens to be. I have all this information I know about them. And then if you read a biography about someone you don't know, you learn all this detail about them. I've read biographies. I know so much about General Dwight Eisenhower. But I never knew him. I never met him. I haven't met any of the athletes that I'm so fascinated by. I don't know any movie stars. I've never met any. I know so much about them. But I don't know them. I know more about people like that than I do about my own neighbors on my street, to my shame. I know so much about them, but I don't don't know them. And Packer's point is simply this. It's possible to immerse ourselves in Christian religion. It's possible to know about God and the practice, the practices of our faith, and still not know him experientially. And he explains this further. He says this in the book. This is in chapter two of the book. And we've provided a link in, in the notes uh, for the book if you want to pick it up. But he said, he said this, those who know God, and it's, it, these are four bullet points and they're, they're, they're headings on sections where he does a, a beautiful exposition from the book of Daniel on all of this. But he said, those who know God have great energy for God, have great thoughts of him, uh, sorry, great, uh, great thoughts of God, show great boldness for God, and have great contentment in God. You start to think about that. If if you're professing Christ, you say you know him, but really you just know about him, you won't have these things. If you just know a lot about God and you're just doing religious practice, you won't have these things. 
You won't have great energy for God. You won't have great thoughts about God. You won't, you won't have a great boldness for God. And you won't have great contentment in God. But if you're a believer, if you're genuinely a believer, if you're going after godly things, a godly life, then you will have great energy for God and the thing that you want to do more than anything else is be with God's people and serve God's people and serve this community and tell people about Jesus. You will have that level of energy. If you know Jesus Christ and you're pursuing godly things, if if you are continuing in the faith, you will have great thoughts of God. You will know that the best thoughts you have on any day, at any point in the day, are thoughts about Jesus. There will be moments in your day where you will pause in the midst of the busyness and you will think about Jesus and you will worship him in that moment. That's what it means to know God. You'll have a great boldness for for God and not be ashamed of his gospel and you'll have great contentment in God so that you will say, nothing in this world grips me like Jesus. You, You can have the whole world just give me Jesus, we sing. Take the whole world and give me Jesus. That's, that's what it means to know God. That's what it means to continue in the faith. And I would, I would suggest this, if you're serious about this, that you would take these four criteria this week and in your private time with the Lord, you get the scriptures open, you're praying before the Lord and spending time with him just in the quietness of uh, that time that you, lay, you set aside. Just use those four criteria as a personal assessment. Take some time this week to think about those four bullet points and ask the question, is that me or not? And if it is, if it's you, if you genuinely say, it's not perfect and I'm striving for it, I'm growing in it, that's great. Then, then, then the encouragement is gonna come to you, continue in the faith. Just continue what you're doing, continue in the faith. If that's you, continue in the faith. But if that is, if that is not you, if you do the assessment and you go like, that is, that's not me, then you need to have a come to Jesus moment this week, a real one. And if that requires you to repent, to turn from whatever direction you're heading, to get, to get to this, to get to having faith, you can't continue in the faith if you don't have the faith, but let's have the faith and let that grow so that you can continue in the faith as Paul is encouraging the folks here. All right, here's a second means. I'll also be strengthened as a Christian if I am enduring every trial, if I'm enduring every trial, you think about trials. <clears throat> Anytime the word trials come up, I, I automatically think of one passage in particular. I think it's because I like the book of James so much. I find it so practical and helpful, and I love the way he writes. But James 1, 2 to 4 is kind of like a classic passage on the notion of trials as a Christian and, and setting up what, I would, what, what many have called a theology of suffering for Christians, a theology of suffering. So, so listen to these verses. This is James 1, 2 to 4. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, it includes sisters, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Now I want to tell you, I love those verses. I love that passage. But part of it is because I find it to be such a um, challenging, ongoing discussion between me and the Lord about these verses. At various times in my life where I've had to have, had to have the conversation with him about these verses, because I have, I want to be honest with you, and maybe you feel it too, but I have so many objections to what James has written here. Do you feel that? So many objections to what he's, what he's written here. In my flesh, in my flesh, I object to what he's written here because I realize the massive challenge that all of this is to my faith. If I'm being honest with you, I would, just, I would go to God and I would just say, you know what? I don't, I don't need to be perfected. I don't need to be perfected. I don't, I don't need to be, to use the language here, I don't need to be brought to completion. Uh, Lord, I appreciate, I appreciate the effort, God, thank you, but perfection's not really on my radar. And what I would prefer is if you would just give me a smooth ride through life. <laughs> Am I the only one praying these prayers or is that a few of you as well? That's why I find these verses so challenging. This is how we feel about it. Because, because listen, we'll, right now, for those, for those who are in the room who are not enduring any particular trial right now, things are pretty cool for you. You have no problem giving assent to the theology of suffering. I believe that there's a theology of suffering for Christians. And you'll even preach it to others who are in the midst of their suffering. But even though you embrace the theology, you don't want to have to practice the theology. But as soon as a major trial hits, why me, God? And we completely jettison our theology of suffering. Why me, God? Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? And I would like to answer that question with two very quick bullet points. The first is this. The reason why you're suffering, the reason why you go through difficult times is because you were born in sin and because you were born into a world that is marred with, by sin. That's the answer. Everybody's life is hard to varying degrees, but everyone's life is hard. So don't stand back and go, why is this Why has this loved one passed? Why have we gone through this? Why is this so difficult? Why have we faced this disease? Why have I lost my job? Because you were born in sin and you were born into a sin-marred world. And everybody faces multiple somethings in their lifetime. And then secondly, because that applies to every human being, but secondly, because you're a Christian and God has a plan to grow you. Not to mention the fact that God has an overarching sovereign plan for this world that may include you going through suffering for the benefit of other people and his overall plan for this world. So the way Paul and Barnabas are helping to strengthen these believers is by reminding them of this theology of suffering. Verse 22 finishes up here and he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Again, absolutely critical to our understanding of the Christian life. 
Through many tribulations, we Christians must enter the kingdom of God. So tribulation and trial and trouble are the norm for the Christian life. And they are the path to maturity and transformation, James 1, 2 to 4. And I'll add this, they're the path to knowing God. This is how we become more intimate with him. Now, Paul isn't just spouting theology that he doesn't know anything about. Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. He's not just a preacher telling you to live your, Christ, your, your life in a certain Christ-like way. He's living it out himself. In fact, he wrote a letter, he wrote a couple of letters, he wrote a few letters to the Corinthians, two that we have, and um, he wrote this in his second letter, the second letter we have, consider the trials, consider what Paul went through and why he's qualified to write what he wrote. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, he says, his far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's at Lystra. We just read about that. Three times I was shipwrecked. Don't, don't go to sea with Paul. <laughs> you know, if Paul says to you, hey, there's this great three-hour tour. <laughs> like everyone knows how that's turning out, right? That's not, don't go to sea with Paul. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. How is your week, you know? <laughs> That's tough. He endured all of it. He carried on with his Christian life and with the mission God had entrusted to him, he continued in his faith. And he endured every trial. Why? Because the Holy Spirit strengthened him to do so. And the great news for you and I today is it's the same Holy Spirit that's available to help us. And the Lord meets us. Whatever our trial is, he's going to give us the right measure of his grace and the right measure of his Holy Spirit and the strength that we need to make it through that trial. We don't have to go through all the things Paul went through. We're going to be facing our own stuff and God's going to give us the right measure of exactly what we need to get through it in a way that shows our faith and impacts the people around us. The Holy Spirit strengthened him and the Holy Spirit strengthens us. So quickly now, these last three, because I spent so much time on the front end here. Continuing in the faith, I'll be strengthened as a Christian if I'm continuing in the faith, enduring every trial, and, and fo following spiritual leaders, following spiritual leaders. Now, one of the reasons Paul and Barnabas went back along the same route to visit the churches that they had established was to, look at verse 23, says, to appoint elders in every church. And they were essentially following the model that was in the Jewish synagogues of appointing uh, lay leaders, lay elders, non-vocational 
leadership in the local church chosen by the congregation and in this case appointed by those who were outside of the congregation but who were mature enough to be able to do that and that was the apostles who had been sent by Antioch. So in essence, the elders of each of these churches are being appointed by elders from Antioch. It's the exact same pattern that we followed in our church in the last 22 years. We've had the pleasure of planting some churches in uh, Huntsville, Muskoka and um, also in uh, Glasgow in Scotland. We planted two churches in Cameroon and in each of those cases, the elders were selected out of those churches but were ultimately appointed by our elders because those churches were under the authority of our elders up until that moment that we appointed those elders. The same thing happened to us. We were planted as a church in 2001 by a church in Chicago. Two years later, two and a half years later, we had found some men in the church that could, that could serve as elders, but it was the elders in Chicago who came and helped us interview and who approved and appointed those elders in our church. And we're following the pattern exactly as we're seeing it here. And for us, as having this plurality of elders in our church, part of your growth and protection and strengthening as a Christian is having godly elders who watch out for you. And uh, one of the best verses that kind of speak to this is Hebrews 13, 17. And uh, this is what the, the preacher of, the, um, of Hebrews says. He, he says this, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And this, this, isn't, this is a tough thing for people, this whole idea of obeying these leaders. I can assure you we have very godly elders in this church who are watching out for your souls and who are bearing the burden. I hear Paul say at the end of, of what he said to the Corinthians, you know, on top of all of this, I have the anxiety for all the churches. And I can tell you that the elders of this church bear the weight, bear the anxiety for this church in leading this church and protecting this church. And we have an obligation as members of this church to tuck in under that leadership and to receive the spiritual benefits that come as a result of that. The strengthening that comes as a result of being under godly leaders. The reality is that this is challenging in our culture today because there's this, this, this anti-institutionalism and there's this suspicion of leadership because, well, for a thousand reasons, we've gotten to this place where people don't want to respect leadership and they don't respect institutions, and yet here we have it in God's word for us as Christians to do the exact thing the culture is fighting against. We even have Christians now who are stepping out saying, you know what, I can be a good Christian without the church. I can be a good Christian without being under elders. And I, I, want to, I want to give you a little technique to deal with a person like that. If you have a Christian in your life who's saying, like, I don't need the church and I don't need elders, I think the best thing to do is just to chuckle a little bit when they say that. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Just <laughs> perfect. That was perfect. Just a little, not like right in their face or anything, not like a big guffaw or anything like that, just like a, just a little chuckle. A little chuckle when any professing believer tells you they don't need the church to be a good Christian because clearly they don't have a clue. They, clearly, they don't need the Bible either. I don't need the church and I don't need the Bible because if they read the Bible, the Bible would point them to the church and would tell them to obey your leaders, to get in under godly elders and benefit from being in that place of godliness. So much more I could say about all of that, I'm, I'm sure you realize. Here's a fourth means. I'll be strengthened if I am praying and seeking prayer. 
everything, everything must be saturated in prayer in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship that finds, in fact, its most intimate expression in prayer. Jesus said a lot of great things. You read the Gospels, and there's so many things that Jesus said about humanity and about the Word, and so many things he said directly to us. I think about the, how stunning the parables are or the teaching that he gave and the things that he did to benefit humanity. I think about the, the, the incredible impact of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. But I would, I would say this, of all the awesome things he said to us that we find such comfort in, the best things Jesus said were not to us, but to his Father. The best things Jesus said were not to us, but to his Father. Because it's in his prayers, in, the, in his conversation with his Father, that we see what our relationship with the Father is to be like. In fact, that's our goal, is to be in that relationship with God where we simply talk to him unhindered, where we know exactly what to say, that it's received perfectly, that it's, it's eye-to-eye conversation with the God of the universe who made us. That's the ideal, that's the goal, that's what we're heading toward, that unhindered relationship with our Father. And so Luke records here, verse 23, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And as believers, we must be praying in the same way, saturating everything that we do in prayer. All of our prayers, and the prayers can be very quick and they can be about something specific, but if we're having intentional time with the Lord, let there be adoration in our prayers. Let there be worship where we're simply exalting the Lord. Use the scriptures, in fact, use the Psalms to pray back to the Lord the things that the scriptures say about him. Adore him, uh, declare him to be worthy, and worship him in your prayers. Beyond that, have a time of confession. We're taught by Jesus in the Lord's prayer to confess our sins. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So spend time in confession. Father, forgive me for the sins of the past day, the past week. Lead me not into temptation. In our prayers, we should also be spending copious amounts of time in thanksgiving, showing gratitude to God for everything that he's given to us, starting with life and breath itself, but also every relationship, every bit of blessing, all the prosperity, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the abundant life we enjoy now, and the eternal life that we're heading toward. Spend lots of time simply thanking God. And then petition him on behalf of all the needs, the needs of your friends and your family, the needs of causes around the world, the needs that you yourself have. Petition him and bring your requests to the Lord. Not only praying, but also seeking prayer. Humbly seeking prayer from others. Ask people in your life group to pray for you and, and, and be humble, like open yourself up. And this is a real struggle for me. Would you pray this for me? Pray with friends, pray with family, get them to pray for you. Submit your requests on the Connect form, whether the form is it moves down the aisles on Sundays or you go online and fill in that Connect form and give us your requests and those are faithfully prayed for every week. 
Go to our website, fill in the form, send your prayer requests in. Come to the front at the end of every service. We have elders and leaders up here who are wanting to pray with you. How sad for any of you if you come in here carrying a massive burden. You know you need prayer for that and then just to turn and walk and leave without coming to the front and seeing people who are so eager to pray for you about that. Take advantage of the fact that they're here praying and seeking prayer from others. For those who are watching on the live stream right now in the chat to say, I have a prayer request. Would somebody pray for me? And we'll connect with you personally to pray for you in this moment. We are strengthened in our faith when we pray and seek prayer. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Amen? And finally this, the final means, I'm strengthened when I am telling others about Jesus, in the last five verses, 24 through 28, give us a recap and tell us about uh, them arriving home to tell the stories in Antioch, and they've been on mission, and they've been pointing people to the cross and pointing people to the empty tomb, and they've been seeing lives transformed by that. And imagine how even just telling these stories would have been strengthening to Paul and Barnabas as they went over it all again. Oh yeah, I remember what happened in Derby. Remember what happened in Perga? And they're rehearsing it and they're being strengthened as they're talking about the stories. But all these people who haven't heard these stories, the church that sent them out in hope and was praying for them that they would be effective is now hearing how the Holy Spirit had been moving and how they'd all be built up by this. So whether we're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or we're having gospel talk with a fellow believer, the effect is always the same. It's strengthening. It strengthens us to talk about Jesus. The more we talk about Jesus, the stronger we're going to get. It's like working out with kettlebells. A year ago, I decided I needed to get in shape, so I bought, someone said to me, you should buy kettlebells. So I bought kettlebells. Didn't help at all. (laughs) They didn't say you have to, you know, buy kettlebells and use them. But as I understand it, if you use them, you're going to increase the amount of reps you're able to do, or you're going to increase the weight on those kettlebells, and you're going to get stronger as you do it. And that's what we're talking about with Jesus. Listen, the more, the more Jesus talk reps you get in, the more weighty the conversations are going to get, the more reps you're going to want to have, the more encouraged you're going to be, the more encouraged the people around you are going to be, talk Talk, talk about Jesus. And when you're strengthened in this way, it means you're going to be able to live your Christian life no matter what comes your way. Nothing will upset you. Nothing will send you reeling. Christ himself, the Spirit of God, will be your strength. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we um, again have been privileged to sit under your word, to, to hear your word, to, to hear what Paul and Barnabas went through, to hear the stories from these cities, to think about the lives transformed. 
And I do pray that your Holy Spirit would use it in, in the lives of everyone who's watching, everybody who's in the room right now, Father, to stir in us a passion for the gospel, for us to have a desire to be strong, to be strengthened in the very way that we've seen it in today's passage. God, that we would be committed to this. For those that are already kind of living this way, Father, that we would be further strengthened, that we would be encouraged to continue in the faith in this way. And, and for those who are struggling to do this, or maybe some who haven't even yet come to faith in Christ, that they would take that first step to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to humble themselves, confess their sins, and be converted. God, I pray that you would do a deep work in each one of our lives, Father, that we would be humble before you to see it happen, and we would take none of the glory for ourselves. This is the work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives. And we commit ourselves to that in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.